Hey everyone, welcome to Taking the Pulse, a healthcare podcast. I am Heather Hoops Matthews here in the studio with Nexon Pruitt healthcare attorney, Dara Coleman. Dara, good to be with you today. It's great to see you again, Heather. Our topic today is going to be senior living, and there's a lot that goes into that. Absolutely. A lot that we don't think about, right? Right, including design. Yes. So as a lawyer, you're constantly, I assume, talking with clients who are planning and expanding, and, um, and we're going to hear more about that today. Right. So today we're going to talk about what I think is really fascinating, and it's the combination of the clinical and the aesthetic. Mm-hmm. So we're contemplating how, particularly in the era of COVID, we can accommodate the psychological and mental health needs of the elderly population, as well as the clinical and sanitary needs. And we're so lucky to have Stuart Barber with us to address those particular issues, which, believe it or not, are somewhat controversial. Really? Okay, well, I look forward to that. So those of you who are with us now, we hope you'll stay with us. We'll be right back with Stuart Barber. He is the Director of Senior Living at McMillan, Pasden, and Smith. So stay with us for Taking the Pulse. Welcome back, everyone. Joining us today is Stuart Barber. He is with the architecture firm McMillan, Pasden, and Smith, and he is Director of Senior Living. And in that capacity, Stuart has served as a designer and project architect on numerous projects in the last 15 years, focused primarily on senior adults. Stuart, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be here. Will you join or start us off by um, sharing in an overview sense, kind of the impact that design has both on operation effectiveness and just on the quality of life for senior adults? I think that at some point in the past, um, those were not uh, mutually exclusive things, um, or, or at least they're not now. Um, I think that uh, in, the, in the past, the, the uh, nursing homes in particular were designed with um, operational effectiveness that, that sometimes put quality of life or the resident experience um, at odds with that. So they were designed more for efficiency um, and less for the resident. And there were reasons behind that. They came from from the hospital, uh, from the healthcare, where uh, efficiency, honestly, is not a bad thing. It's, it's in fact, it's, it's key at delivering quality care. But when we talk about long-term care, and that spans all of senior living, um, is typically associated with skill, but assisted living is, is certainly some long-term care as well. You know, we, we are looking at uh, how do we make that, uh, that a home for the resident? So we look at quality of life is really just what do we expect out of a house? Um, and we being everybody, um, the, uh, the American culture, you know, um, uh, in America, of course, in every other country, there is a culture, uh, cultural designation about what a home is, uh, what it has, the way it makes you feel as a, a person that lives there. Um, and, and we all kind of know what that is. So uh, not to simplify it too much, but really it's just thinking about how we would like uh, to live our lives because uh, the residents are, are one of us. They're human just like we are, and they have the same experiences and have the same wants and needs in their life. Well, one of the ways that um, I think you are emphasizing um, 
the promotion of total wellness of senior adults is through activities and events that that really promote socialization and stimulation, right, of their intellectual um, engagement and, and overall exercise. How do you incorporate movement and engagement through some of your designs? Can you walk us through that process from an architect's perspective? Sure. So uh, when we talk about wellness, of course, skilled care, assisted care, and even independent living with some, um, you know, with some qualities of care, uh, more like home health, um, come with, uh, of course, that part of it is is taking care of all of us as we as we age and and we uh, develop things that are part of that. Um, and as you know, as we live longer, then then that just uh, compounds a little bit. But uh, the wellness of the body, the physical wellness, is, is not the only thing. I mean, there's, it's, uh, it's maintaining a, a, qual- sure, a quality of life, but a quality of life is, uh, is the expectation that there is, there is meaning to it. There is uh, purposeful living. So, um, so what does that mean? It, uh, for all of us, uh, it means doing something uh, uh, creative or doing something purposeful with your life during the day, having something that you look forward to, um, and that shouldn't change um, when uh, when there's a transition has to be made to um, to a senior living where even if there's care involved. So what we try to do is is provide those spaces for social interaction, um, uh, provide uh, uh, differing spaces. Uh, residents really are just again just like us. Sometimes we want to be uh, have more of a alone, more of a quiet. Sometimes we want to be in the in the middle of attention and and have uh, that more public experience. And so we do try to, to take some of those spaces um, and, and we, we call them amenity spaces because that's what they are um, and, and, and break them down into those components. And so uh, they work with activities. Uh, there's an activity director typically. So how can these spaces be used for different things and, um, and, and really lead to that purposeful living? Uh, what we see a lot is there, there's an activity space, but what 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 kind of activities? What, how can we open that up a little bit more? Um, how can we have cooking classes, for instance? Uh, things that you wouldn't actually think of being in uh, a part of that a nursing home or assisted environment. Um, uh, there's no reason why I can't. You know, arts and crafts classes, um, lots of lots of things that kind of promote some of that part, and. Uh, we, we've actually designed projects, if, if you're aware of the, the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute is a, is a fantastic um, organization that, that establishes these uh, essentially classrooms that are, that are uh, near college campuses. And, and we've, uh, we've designed a building that's kind of taken advantage of its location next to one of these where they actually get, you don't get degrees, but you get, you know, you can go learn how to be a photographer and take college classes uh, without all the tests, uh, without all the grades. And that is a, is a really unique and, and really uplifting experience. How can we take that into uh, the residences and the homes that we design and create those spaces for that to happen? Now, you're known for the household model, if I'm getting this correct, for senior living spaces, which are often like clinical settings. And if you would describe for us what that is and why would that be controversial? Yeah, that's interesting. I, controversial is is probably well, and maybe maybe five years ago it was a little bit more on that side, or, or at least I hope. 
Um, and it goes by a lot of names. Uh, the household model is kind of a buzzword in the industry a little bit, but um, there, are, there are other things that kind of go that way. And really, uh, they kind of follow the idea of, of, of culture change, which is also kind of an industry term where, um, you know, it stands for uh, taking the institutional model that, like I described earlier, was kind of born out of the healthcare industry, and w- which is so uh, so focused on operational effectiveness and uh, and the way it's run, and the way that the the nurses uh, and the care staff approach the residents. It's it's a culture, um, and the problem with it is that it's it's a bad culture. It, it does not promote the sort of resident centered. Um, living, it, it's not it's not just a bad thing. You know, nurses love the residents they care for, but um, how can their their um, their views of how they treat the residents be opened up a little bit more to include some of those things, and uh, and how can that be translated into the building? So when we talk about the household model, it it, it kind of promotes some of those things. Of course, a lot of them are operational. You know, it's going to come from. Um, our clients, which are the providers and the, um, and the staff that, that work with them. But in the physical environment, what we try to do is uh, look at, like I said earlier, at the way the house is made. So uh, institutional nursing homes have long hallways. You've seen them. We call them uh, matchboxes or egg crates. You know, it's just a, a long row of, of uh, what is mostly semi-private rooms, sometimes even more than that. And uh, everybody... Everybody in the facility goes to one dining room. They all have one day room sometimes. And those are the two places that they go. And no part of the entire facility uh, reminds you of a house uh, or, or really anything residential. Um, so those dining rooms are way uh, overscaled because uh, they are sized to fit all of the residents in the entire facility. So really the tenant of the household model is breaking down a population of a facility into smaller parts um, just to begin with. And so now you've got something that's a little bit more manageable in terms of design to look at the scale, the residential scale. Um, And that's kind of an architect's term, right? Uh, What we're talking about is the human scale. It's what you feel comfortable, what all of us feel comfortable in a space. So now we have smaller households, uh, which might contain really from, from 12 up to about 24 people, uh, residents, and they all share a dining room. So now that dining room is a lot smaller. Um, you get to know your, your, uh, the folks on your household, and uh, those nurses are dedicated. So really, it becomes more of a family almost atmosphere. And, and it, it turns into something that really your family and friends, re- residents, family and friends want to come visit, which is another part of it is providing some of those spaces, not only to make it easy for that to happen, but to, to actually get them there, you know, sharing a meal. Um, you know, I think most people have, have stepped into um, one of these facilities before and a lot of times, and you don't see it much anymore, but the smell is what hits you. And uh, it's either smells like, something you don't want to smell or it smells too clean or institutional or clinical. And really some of those things, it's not a big thing, but it is a big thing. It, mm-hmm. it, it really drives towards um, what we all expect. And I heard a, a great administrator at a facility we toured one time kind of uh, describe it as if you, if you see anything that doesn't look like your house or isn't done the way that you would do at home, just 
go try to figure out a way for it to be done that way. And so if it beeps, just stop the beeping. You know, if it smells, stop the smell. And uh, that's really the way when we sit down to approach how to lay out a facility, we really do ask those questions. Um, and the household model, as it all gets put together, uh, really the quality of care cannot suffer. And uh, that, that's, that is key and, and not to be minimized, but how can it be uh, placed in a, in a central location, but not be as visible, right? I think a, a lot of us are familiar with the, the institutional model of the nurses station being right there in the middle of the corridor and all the, the long hallways shoot off of it. Um, and that really is uh, hopefully something that, that we're not gonna see anymore as these facilities get replaced because um, one, it gives a place for nurses just just to congregate and to go when you know they actually want to be out on the on the floor, so to speak, with the residents themselves. Um, they do have things that they have to do, and they have to chart those things and write them down and all those things. But there are ways with technology to do those things, uh, not sitting at a desk. So, uh, and the line of sight that that is not a, as crucial an issue anymore. So, uh, there are things that open up um, uh, that is allowed these the development of some of these to really mimic a house more than an institution and building codes have kept up with those things as well so it really uh really now there's there's no excuse to kind of look at that um especially when laying out a, a brand new facility i think this is fascinating you know because but you really are talking about a cultural shift but this cultural shift and the change in the dynamic um, in the architectural structure stored, I think actually probably came in handy in those facilities that had already integrated that during COVID because you're dealing with smaller populations in the household model. Can you talk a little bit about how the facilities who had already integrated the household model might have fared a little better um, from a clinical perspective during COVID? Sure. Um and that, that's absolutely right. I think that our first impression was, and, and we're, uh, we, we are, we've started construction on, on a couple of nursing homes and have a, a couple more under design right now. So this was something that was, uh, and last year, this was happening um, really at, at the time and it was evolving and it still is evolving. And, and right away, the household model um, really has a couple of intuitively positive things about it that uh, probably don't need research. There, there is a lot and there still will be some and, and that, is, that is necessary, but breaking down the population in smaller, smaller groups um, is, is absolutely a way to do, to, to limit, uh, limit the spread, limit exposure um, and, and help with that. Uh, now it's, it's all gonna come down to, uh, you know, the dedication of the operators, the administrators and the nurses um, to, uh, to con controlling some of those things and uh, and doing the things that we all know we have to do um, uh, should not be should absolutely be a part of that. But um, isolation in households is, is is going to go a long way in terms of limiting the spread. Um, now, as we've seen, um, isolation is a bad word. I mean, we all we always knew it was a bad word and. Uh, the, the, the easiest way to deal with a pandemic is to isolate. You know, we, we are still doing that. In a nursing home, there, there is a line where quality of life 
is 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 put so far uh, aside uh, for isolation's sake that there's a conversation there, and and I don't know what it is, and it's one we've been having, and I hear uh, our clients or providers that are saying we just can't we can't do one at the complete expense of another. So right. we've been talking about what what are things we can do that uh, you know that are practical and. As the research comes out of this, and we're, we're still learning how things spread, especially with the, 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 the Delta variant and it's spreading in different ways, but uh, we know a lot more than we used to. And how can we take that and, and not design nursing homes or, or uh, senior living facilities just for that, um, but allow some things to happen where visitation is still a part of, uh, a part of life and, and, it, and can happen with, uh, with family members um, while maintaining some of those barriers and safety. Um, a lot of it has to do strategy-wise with, uh, with HVAC systems. And that is something that we're looking at a lot. Um, again, the household model does provide a way to break those systems down. So we, we have um, uh, essentially air conditioners that are room-based. Um, so if we have all private rooms, then those are, those are uh, serving the residents that are there um, so it is an ease of isolation on that account. And we have fresh air units that typically go to all of those rooms. So there is a way with, uh, with the way we do that to separate some of those things so we don't have cross-contamination. Um, there are UV lights and uh, ion bipolarization that can be put in those to kind of scrub the air um, that have been in use in hospitals and, and clean facilities for a long time. Um, and I think are, are, are part of this. Um, but the approach to this is, is needs to be careful because if it's, if it's targeting an approach that relies on complete isolation and, 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 and that is not the strategy, then does it fall apart? Um, and, and I think that that's part of the conversation. And if there is a strategy to, to put all of the infected residents into one household, so to speak, you're moving and, and that comes with some challenges as well. And actually, um, I, I think that that strategy has been borne out to not really work. So if, if we're planning on an isolation household, um, but, but the operator doesn't plan to actually move them there, then there's no point in doing that. So and there's some cost considerations that come with it. And, um, you know, this could probably go, this conversation could go on and on, but I, I think that the, the takeaway from it is there's an ongoing conversation that we are having with our clients or providers looking at the research and, and there will be more research about this. And I, I think it's going to drive a lot of the conversations and how we might change some things to come. And, and really one of the biggest things that I hope will come out of it is, uh, is building more private rooms. And, and that is really is an industry led um, uh, thing that uh, we've been talking about for a while and is usually a part of the household model, usually has more private rooms, but um, just with the way uh, you know, the, the reimbursement and the whole system works, um, semi-private rooms are, are hard to get completely away from. So uh, hopefully we'll, we'll get closer to that and time goes, as time goes by. Stuart, I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave with thinking about one thing that you said the whole time, which makes sense to me, which is just resident-centered living. Like look at it from that perspective, and I suspect then it'll make it more enticing for everyone and won't have a stigma that maybe right. it would have had from years past. Our 20 minutes has flown by today. Um, I have enjoyed thinking about it 
from this perspective right. instead of it just being the cookie cutter. And I'm uh, on behalf of Dara, thank you for joining us today and for the work that you're doing, you know, for My us pleasure. in South thank Carolina. You. Thank you. And thank you for thinking about things from the perspective of the residents and not the cookie cutter, but how to make the cookies. You know, I think it's a great um, cultural shift and we're so happy that you're part of it, Stuart. So thank you for your time today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And Dara, good to be with you. Always great to see you. Thank you. And for those of you watching and listening today, we hope you enjoyed this conversation and we hope to see you next time right here on Taking the Pulse, a healthcare podcast. <laughs>